Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds today, and we're delighted to have one of our own faculty, Tim Beaver, be our uh, lecturer for today. Uh, we thank the kitchen for making some interesting grain cereal this morning. That We've had this porridge a number of times, and we're thankful to them for doing it while the culinary medicine program is on hiatus this summer. Um, Without further ado, I'd like to bring Ed Catherwood here to uh, tell us a little bit about Tim. Ed is an associate professor of medicine in the section of cardiology, and he's the, he is the cardiology section chief. Thanks, Rich. Good morning, everybody. Dr. Uh, Tim Beaver received his undergraduate and medical education at the uh, University of Kansas, uh, which is his home state. Uh, he and his wife, Kathy, came to Dartmouth-Hitchcock for internal medicine training in the late 1990s, and he stayed on uh, to uh, get his cardiology training with us as well. Uh, Tim left uh, to join a practice in Kansas, uh, completing his cardiology training, but we were able to lure him back in 2007 along with his wife, and uh, he has since uh, been uh, a very valuable member of the section and with particular expertise and interest in echocardiography, where he is the associate director of the Echo Lab. Uh, Tim has had uh, a lot of interest in research as well as his uh, teaching component and uh, most recently has become involved with Dartmouth College to develop an interesting program relevant to sports medicine and cardiovascular risk uh, for athletes. It's a very difficult area. Lots of uh, interesting literature in different countries as to how athletes are screened for high-risk uh, substrates. Uh, but his talk today is about uh, sudden cardiac death and uh, the issue of participation uh, screening in the high-risk subsets. And Tim, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Ed and Rich. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming. Can everybody hear me okay? This microphone. So, as I told Rich at the beginning, of, uh, before I started this talk, it's going to create more questions than it does answers, but I think it, it raises some important questions to talk about. So, my disclosures, I like sports, otherwise I don't have anything to disclose. <laughs> so, just to give you a little bit of an overview of sort of how this is going to flow, I'm going to talk a, bit, a little bit about the athlete, what's a competitive athlete. Uh, what are the yin and yang of exercise, the good and the bad? Um, the, I'm going to describe the athletic population a little bit. I'm going to talk about pre-participation screening and the scope of the problem of trying to screen athletes and who and what are we trying to find. Um, talk a little bit about Italy, um, not just because I like the food there, um, but because that's where the screening um, sort of nidus uh, has started, and that versus the United States. And then delve into the athlete's heart versus the diseased heart how the heart adapts electrically and um, structurally, and then sort of go beyond that and talk about the importance of having the chain of survival and medical action plan, and a little bit about the research we're doing at the college. And then the mystery at the end is what is the memorial challenge? So the competitive athlete, um, one who participates in an organized team or individuals for sport requiring systematic training and regular competition against others while placing a high premium on athletic excellence. So just as, as we go through the literature that I'm going to present, most of the stuff we're going to talk about is centered around people in the age group of probably somewhere around 14 to 15 through 25. Um, I'm going to 
at times broaden that out because I think it's important. You, I have colleagues sitting in this room or watching at the VA or we have patients that far outreach just that age group that are competitive athletes. Um, so I think it's important because of, of our patient population and the importance of being active and um, participating in sport to, to broaden that out a little bit so it makes it more of a population health issue, which I know we like here. So um, this is a diagram from The Economist from 2003, and the reason I like it is not just because I'm from Kansas and we don't believe in evolution there, right? <laughs> no. I left Kansas, and I believe in evolution. So what it brings up, actually, is that where did we come from? So we sort of evolved through these, through these pictures, and you can see the last last person in that evolution looks very athletic. So what was that person's life like? So that person was a, a nomadic person that got a lot of moderate exercise activity every day and did a lot of hunting, which required short bursts. So that was where we came from physiologically. So unfortunately, if anybody remembers this, the, the evolution we've gotten to now um, is not necessarily good, which brings us back to our patients a little bit because um, obviously, we have a little bit of a dichotomy in the United States, as you're going to see from participation in sport, that we have people have sort of fallen on the two sides of activity, either being completely inactive, as our last gentleman, or being someone that's trying to be highly active, like the second-to-last gentleman. Or sometimes you have the, the second-to-last gentleman masquerading um, when he really eats and drinks like the, the last gentleman, okay? And he thinks that the sport or the exercise is actually going to confession and it's going to absolve him of his sins, but that's not true either. So, so I thought this was a very important because this isn't a new problem, right? So Plato said, the lack of activity destroys the good condition of every human being while movement and methodical physical exercise save it and preserve it. And Hippocrates said, if we could give every individual the right amount of nourishment and exercise, not too little, not too much, we would have found the safest way to health. So these ideas aren't new. Clearly, right? People recognize the importance of being active. So just this is a summary slide showing the benefits of exercise, and I'm going to sort of go around the clock a little bit here. And what, what does doing some sort of daily exercise in competition or not do for us? So decreases our risk of dementia, improves our cognitive We know it has a profound impact, especially we are constantly checking when the medical is working. We have a we positive, have a positive profile, profile, right? right? And, and, and as we become less inactive, and our body starts to store fat and other things, um, we have a less favorable profile. <clears throat> Musculoskeletal-wise, it decreases osteoporosis, risk, and falls, and you makes you less likely to be disabled. From a cancer perspective, I'm obviously not going to go into detail of this, but there's some decreased risk of cancer. And obviously, closer to my heart, cardiovascular-wise, it decreases mortality, risk for coronary disease, um, blood pressure. So what about the speculated mechanisms for the detrimental effects of exercise? I love this slide because there's a lot of question marks, as everybody can see. That means there's research opportunities, right? So intense exercise does several things. Um, we, we tend to think of the positive things that we did, it does, what I showed on the last slide. So the most probably recognized thing that it does is increased vagal tone at rest, which we're going to get into a little bit later with EKGs, 
and cause atrial stretch, which puts people at risk for atrial fibrillation. And endurance athletes especially, but athletes for a long time have been known to have problems with AFib. So that's, that's one sort of more recognized problem. So the, the other question marks come in. Um, does intense prolonged exercise cause oxidative or shear stress problems and can actually predispose you to have coronary disease? Um, I hate to even bring troponin up because it's such a fun topic, and I have a whole separate lecture on that, but we know from multiple uh, avenues and marathons, people drawing troponins post-marathon, that intense endurance exercise actually elevates troponin. Is there a consequence to that long-term? Can that cause fibrosis? Can that cause adverse cardiac remodeling? We know from recent studies that there, uh, on arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, it's actually the first disease that's been shown to actually get worse with exercise, that it actually increases the penetrance of the, of the disease by exercising more. Um, and then other things such as dilated cardiomyopathy. So there's a lot of different speculated mechanisms which aren't completely worked out about what these ultra-endurance type activities mostly can do to, to your body. So why is this such a, a prominent topic in our society? We hold athletes up on a pedestal. We see them as the picture of health. And when something happens to one of them, some, someone that we see is so healthy and fit, it really, I think, is bothersome to us. So this is just a few people, um, famous people, that have had problems. And Hank Gathers was really the first one. He played um, basketball with Loyola Marymount, and he was this imposing figure. And he was on ESPN. He arrested on ESPN. There's a whole 30 for 30 on it that you can watch if you're really that interested. But um, it, it had a huge impact on the world because it was the first time anybody really saw something like that happen. So there's other famous people. Pistol Pete Maravich, who played for the Celtics, played his entire career and died in a pickup game at the age of 42. He had an anomalous coronary artery. Um, Flo Hyman uh, had Marfans, and she was competing in Japan and had a ruptured aorta. Um, during competition. Uh, Jerry Fisher played for the Detroit Red Wings and are arrested during a hockey game. Um, Antonio Puerta was a Spanish football who arrested during a match. And there's been a lot of soccer players, so I just, just picked one. Um, anybody that follows hockey in Boston knows who Rich Peverly was. He played for the Dallas Stars after he played for Boston, and he also arrested during a game. Um, so these prominent figures on TV, sort of the picture of health, arresting is bothersome. So a little more personal to us in, in the area that we have in the last three years, we've had probably four people that I know of that have had a sudden arrest. Two were Dartmouth athletes prior to starting of our program. Um, there was a high school athlete, and there was also uh, an ultra-endurance athlete in the area that arrested. So it's not uncommon. It, 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 it comes personal to everyone when it occurs. And so it causes quite an outrage, and we're going to get into some of that. So the most famous one is Reggie Lewis. Everybody remembers this because he had... A sort, of, sort of an event during a game against the Charlotte Hornets, and he went and saw a cardiologist in Boston who told him couldn't play. He went to see another one and told him couldn't play, and then he arrested at practice. So he's probably the most famous, at least in the East Coast, anyway. So athletic participation in the general population, right, I'm going to broaden it out again, has increased over the last decade. So the young people was mostly the people that we're talking about and we're doing a lot of research on. There's 44 million youth athletes, 7.7 .7 million high school athletes, almost 500,000 collegiate athletes, and only 5,000 professional athletes. So if you look at those people on the last page, they represent that minority of people who are exercising. 
master's athletes make up a, a large portion, whether they're people in this room or patients or friends. Um, there's been a huge increase in participation in marathons and triathlons. Um, and just to give you an idea, in, in a decade, running event finishers um, went from roughly 4 million to 14 million. So again, this dichotomy of people, we are seeing patients that are overweight and obese, but we have a large group of people that are trying to go the other way and they're sort of going to an extreme sometimes. So these people are important to characterize some of this stuff, I think, um, that we're working on in the younger age group because being active is important. So cardiac evaluation of the athlete, I'm gonna talk mostly about the primary prevention of sudden cardiac death and, and that's pre-partition patient screening. Secondary prevention, um, we're gonna talk about at the end. But there is a guideline. There's a 36 Bethesda conference. Um, it was published in Jack in 2005. I think there's a, a reworking in the works, but my understanding from my colleagues is it's not going to change a whole lot. This is a consensus-based guideline, because you can imagine um, there's not 100,000 people with tetrarchology of Fallot that we either let participate or didn't participate. So um, that's a very interesting guideline to look at and as well see how it's applied to patients because it becomes very difficult, especially for our pediatric or adult congenital colleagues to figure out sort of how to restrict people or not, right? Because we know doing physical activity makes you healthy. So, so I always have this nightmare that Elliot Fisher and Gil Walter are going to be sitting in the front row when I'm talking about screening, and they're not there, so that's good. Um, so the purpose of screening is to provide medical clearance for pre participation in competitive sports. Uh, assumption is intense training will increase the risk of sudden cardiac death or progression in trained athletes, and the expected outcome is to reduce the risk associated with organized sports. So for screening, the disease should be prevalent. You're going to see that has issues with this issue. Um, have a significant morbidity and mortality. Clearly, the downside is huge. Um, be somewhat treatable. Um, treatment results in a better outcome. And a good screening test must be available. And it also must be cost effective. We have to be able to, we have cost constraints and we have to realize that. So I apologize, I lost, realized this morning that I lost the references off the slide, but these numbers I can tell you are a little bit of a moving target, but they're, they're, the proportions are generally right. So high school athletes, the prevalence of athletic field deaths is about one in 150,000. Collegiate athletes, it jumps up to roughly one in 50,000. And then older healthy male joggers, as you can imagine, as I'm going to show you in later slides, coronary disease comes into play, and that's an important piece of, of how that impacts that. But there is a significant jump from high school to college where you, you have quite a big jump in the, the um, prevalence relatively. And so that's important. I see these athletes all the time, and there's a, it's a big jump. I don't think people realize the participation in high school and then coming to college. And obviously when they have a problem or they're having symptoms, I see them you know, what the training change is for them to come. So there is, we're, they're being pushed significantly. Um, so this is um, U.S. Vital Statistics that came out of Barry Marin's article from 2014 just looking at causes of death in this 14 to 24 age group, including NCAA athletes. I apologize, I know this is a, this is a little, maybe a little bit fuzzy. It looks pretty big up there, though. So as you would imagine, in this group, motor vehicle accidents, homicide, suicide, and cancer are the top four. Um, causes of, of death. So as far as if we were trying to put money into a national program where you were trying to get the most bang for your buck, probably necessarily U.S. athletes wouldn't necessarily get it. 
there's a, I can tell you there's a lot of argument about these numbers among people, and I'm going to get into that's where the controversy lies, and that's why this is an interesting topic. So what are the causes? What are we looking for? What are, what, 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 what are the causes of sudden death in these, in these young athletes? So cardiomyopathies is a big one. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is the most prevalent one, as you can see in the pie chart. And a lot of those people with indeterminate LVH, possible hypertrophic cardiomyopathy fall in there, too. So the second most common cause is coronary artery-related um, anomalies or coronary disease or, or tunneled LAD. So that, that obviously is a very hard thing to diagnose, but that, that is the second most common cause. And then other channelopathies, long QT syndrome, Brugada, um, things like that, and then ARVC, which is a right ventricular cardiomyopathy. All of these things predispose to ventricular arrhythmias. That's what the sudden death event is, and that's what we're looking for. So just a small thing about commotio cordis. I don't want to get too far into it. It really has a specific age group of like second or third graders. The chest wall has a, has, is a certain thinness. The kids have a certain depth perception problem where they haven't completely developed their depth perception. And the ball comes in, and they, a lot of times they turn towards the ball instead of away from the ball. So those are the high, highest risk groups, and they do a lot of research on chest protectors and stuff. But that's sort of out of the, the concept of this. But the concept is, is what you're used to when you're worried about PVCs and other things on telemetry. It's an R on T phenomenon where the mechanical impact causes an electrical event that happens on a T wave and causes an arrest. So, so just a little bit about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy since that's partially what we're really talking about in the United States. And I'll get into that in a minute. Um, so inheritance is autosomal dominant. There's about 11 sarcomeric mutations. Prevalence is said to be about 1 in 500. That's in the general population. Um, I'll show some studies that that's not quite as high. So clinical symptoms can be fatigue, chest pain. They can present with syncope you know, or cardiac arrest, or they can have no symptoms at all. So physical exam, this is important. How many people in this room, just as a show of hands, do pre-participation screens, fill out a, a screening form, right? Is the, the murmur of, to have a variable sort of systolic ejection murmur that gets worse with things that reduce the ventricular volume. So Valsalva or um, standing from a squatting position. Those are important maneuvers in these patients. So bifid pulse or a forceful apical impulse. Um, EKG's abnormal. This is the moving target to 75 to 90% of patients will have an abnormal EKG. Oops, sorry about that. And the diagnosis is usually made by echo or MRI. It's really an imaging diagnosis, although you can pick it up on an EKG. So these are the variants of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. They don't all look, it doesn't always look the same, um, which can make it more difficult to diagnose. It's not always obstructive. The obstructive mechanism, for those of you who um, are not necessarily familiar, is the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve gets sucked over into left ventricular outflow tract um, during systole because of the proximity of the septum and the leaflet. So when that happens, then you get a murmur and you get an abrupt cessation of flow, and that's what causes the murmur. And that's why if you make the ventricle smaller, it gets louder. Okay, so bringing it back, back to a bigger population, this is a graph looking at the incidence of sudden death per 100,000 person years by age. And basically it's looking at channelopathies in blue, the cardiomyopathies in the tan, and the coronary artery pathology in the yellow. And it's really looking over age, right? So the population of people I'm talking about really have the cardiomyopathies and the channelopathies involved. When you hit age 33, your risk significantly goes up. You still have a significant risk from those things because 
They don't all present early, but all of a sudden you have this coronary pathology that's significant, not just an almost coronary disease. We're really talking about coronary artery disease. So that's, that's important because we also have referees at games running. We have parents sitting in the stands. So, so where did this all start? Where did this screening controversy, what should, you know, this outrage, what should we do? So in the Veneto region of Italy, in the late 70s, they noticed that they felt like population-wise they had a significantly high <clears throat> incidence of sudden death in athletes, so they started to monitor it. And as a reaction to that, they started a screening program. And their, their sports um, training, sports medicine training is a lot different. It has a large cardiology component in Italy. And so they were able to obviously much smaller country, but in this specific region um, and in Italy, they were able to introduce this program. And genetically in that region of Italy, Italy arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, which is, is the predominant genetic disorder. And so they were able to show a significant over the intervening 25 years drop in their sudden death rate. So this really got other people in Europe and everybody excited about screening um, and thought that it was interested. So Barry Marin out of Minnesota, who's really a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy expert, but is also an expert in um, sudden cardiac death and contributes a lot to this literature, looked at the population of Minnesota, which genetically is probably predominantly Caucasian, and, and showed a consistent low sudden death rate. So he falls, as you can imagine, on the side of not screening people because he feels like it's a very low event rate. So that's where the controversy started. And I can tell you, this is a controversial talk. It's still a controversy today. You, depending on who's, whether you're in Boston or whether you're in Minnesota or you're in Washington State, this will get a lot of different responses depending on the conversation of who you're talking to. So the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association have come out with guidelines about personal history and physical examination uh, and family history recommendations as a screening tool. So they do recommend screening, but their screening is recommended to be this personal family and personal history and physical examination. So as we look at these elements, you know, do you have chest pain, tightness, or pressure-related exertion? Have you had syncope? The little asterisk is not labeled as vasovagal. Um, unexplained fatigue or dyspnea or palpitations with exercise, a prior heart murmur, elevated blood pressure. Two new ones that used to be a 12-point screening are, have you had prior restriction from sports or prior testing for the heart? Because I can't even tell you collegiate athletes how many people come up and they don't tell you what they've had done. So family history-wise, obviously any type of premature death. Heart attack to the lay population means a lot different thing than it does to us. It can just mean somebody had a sudden death. So sort of honing in on those questions if they, if they give a positive response. Um, disability from heart disease at a young age or known congenital problems like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, long QT syndrome, Marfan's, other things that we want to know about. And then the physical exam, we talked a little bit about the heart murmur already. Femoral pulses to exclude coarctation. Um, looking for physical stigmata of Marfan syndrome. A lot of times volleyball players and basketball players that you can imagine fall on those margins. And then blood pressure in the sitting position. So that's, that's the current guideline in the United States. And so people have looked at this and said, okay, well, this is what we're recommending. How good is this compared to EKG screening? And as you can imagine, it's the folks in Europe because they're like, yeah, I'm not quite buying that this is really the only thing we should be doing. So um, Sanjay Sharma, who is at, at the College of London, 
um, looked at efficacy of person symptom, symptom and family history questionnaires in screening for these inherited pathologies in the role of EKG. They looked roughly at 3,000. This is a single center study where all of the people were being EKGs interpreted and being interviewed by sports cardiologists. So the, the people that know how to do it and understand an athlete's heart versus a non-athlete's heart. So the age range was variable. Some of them were junior athletes in the sort of 15 to 20 range. Some of them were school-aged children in, in the 10 to sort of high school range. Um, they did personal family history, physical, and a 12-lead EKG. Of all those 2,000 people, they found 25 abnormal EKGs and nine participants were diagnosed with disease associated with sudden death. None were symptomatic or had a family history, and they were all ion channel disorders or arrhythmogenic disorders. There was no hypertrophs. So obviously not a huge study, but interesting nonetheless. So this one was a little more interesting. The, another person, but in the United States, in the camp of we should be screening with EKGs, um, looked at a, did a meta-analysis looking at um, 15 different studies, similarly screening history, physical exam, EKG, they had to have those factors with the athletes. And they looked at 15 studies, they f over 47,000 athletes, 160 were diagnosed with the disorders you see below, the most common being WPW. Anecdotally, very similar to our experience in our single center sort of program that I'm involved in. Um, if you look at the sensitivity and specificity, I apologize, I don't, it looks bigger up there, I hope you guys can see that. Um, the sensitivity and specificity of EKG is pretty good, 94 and 93% respectively. The history was a, had a sensitivity of 20%, but a specificity of 94%. The physical, a sensitivity of 9%, but a specificity of 97%. So positive likelihood ratio for the EKG was 14.8. Anything over 10 is supposedly really good, right? And a negative likelihood ratio of 0 0.055. So the EKG performed pretty well in finding those anomalies, um, the history, the likelihood ratios weren't as favorable. So there's people sort of jockeying back and forth on this to trying to, trying to push it a little bit. So this is the great debate. What other tests should be included in screening? So this is pertinent, right, because we know these tests cost money. So the EKG is probably the most readily available, probably the cheapest to perform, which we talked a little bit about. There's an echocardiogram. I'm the associate director of echocardiography. Um, even though the volume's nice, I don't think everybody should be getting an echo necessarily, but, it, but it, it, it's in the question because you can't really hypertrophs, you're going to find more hypertrophs with an echo than you're going to find with an EKG. And then stress testing, which really nobody's a big proponent of, um, but I'll get into that a little bit more. So this is just a summary that I made for you all looking at, on the left side, um, the different modalities, 14-point history and physical, EKG, echo, stress testing, and then different groups, middle school, high school athletes, college athletes, International Olympic Committee, the European Society of Cardiology, professional sports or master's athletes, and whether they perform these things or not. So if you look at the middle school, high school um, athletes, they pretty much just get a history and physical. That's, that's the standard. That's what the ACA and the AHA have, have laid down. And I think they need to be screened. Somebody needs to at least talk to these patients, right? That's very important. College, I put the asterisk next to no because even though if you look at the general, collegi general collegiate population, when you start to hone it down to, say, Division I athletics, you have especially a lot of football and basketball players being screened, um, definitely with EKGs, a lot of them with echoes, but a lot of programs are doing the full gamut of those two things. Um, the, 
International Olympic Committee and the European Society of ECHO are definitely firm believers in EKG screening, and they screen all of the athletes that participate, as well as U.S. rowing, actually, was in a, a recent addition. So professional sports is a little bit of a different story for me, and that's why I'm going to tell you why is because this is really a pre-employment physical. Professional sports, when you see they go to the NHL combine or the NBA combine or one of the combines, you may think they're going there to jump and run and run the 44 euro dash, but they're going there to get an EKG and echo and these other things. So that's different. The employers are basically taking these one and make sure they're healthy athletes that they're going to be able to perform. They're going to pay them millions of dollars. The safety is a bonus that they know what's going on with them, but the intent isn't the same as the rest of the people we're talking about. And then the master's athletes is a little bit of a moving target. If you look at our different societies, whether it's the American Diabetes Association or um, different, different people, I think they're falling less, less in favor. There's less favor for, for testing. It's going the other direction. But um, it's definitely different across the groups. So what happens to these athletes as they train? So this is where I'm going to get into, and this is just sort of a summary slide. But I think, you know, we all know about the peripheral changes that occur in our muscle fibers. You know, you increase oxidative capacity, you increase mitochondrial enzymes, increase O2 consumption. So what happens in the heart? What are the electrical changes? What are the structural and functional changes? And that's what I think is important because it overlaps with disease. So what is electrical adaption to exercise and about EKG screening? As we know, when we exercise, we get a lot of sympathetic outflow. The other important thing is we get parasympathetic withdrawal during exercise. That's how athletes are able to perform. That's why they have resting bradycardia, such high vagal tone. Their hearts perform very well. They don't need a lot of cardiac output and baseline. But the important thing is how much can you increase it as you exercise. And so electrically, that adaptation leads to a lot of vagal tone at rest. So... This is a study out of Seattle, again, from Jonathan Dresner's lab, looking at the accuracy of EKG interpretation in competitive athletes. The chart on the left, I think, is important because I think for this group to understand the difference between athletes and controls. And if you look at the things that they're looking at, sinus bradycardia, sinus arrhythmia, their QT intervals, um, those things are related to their vagal tone. So... It's very important in athletes to understand this because you can have, if you do an EKG or take a pulse on a, an endurance athlete, it can be in the 40s. Um, they have a lot, the majority of them have sinus arrhythmia. Some of them have prolonged PR intervals. A lot of them, our tolerance for their QTC level is different. Studies have shown that athletes have longer QTs. So um, for a woman, 480 milliseconds is tolerated up to, and a man, 470 milliseconds. So that's different. They are going to have other differences. They're going to have changes related to their structure, which we'll talk about, but it was significantly different than the controls. The important part about this study, I think what they were trying to look at is to say, well, how are we going to do this? If we do this, can we train people to do this? So they said, okay, if we take cardiologists, sports medicine doctors, primary care attendings and residents, and we have these different diseases and we do a screening and we, we screen and then we teach them and then we rescreen, are they teachable? Can we reduce our false positive rate, right? Because that's why my Gil Welch and Elliot Fisher nightmare, right? The false positive rate is going to be too high. So they, they showed that we were trainable, which is good, right? We're trainable. Um, so the increase in, no matter what, what sort of your baseline training was, if you were trained on certain criteria for the EKG, you could actually perform that out. And that also held out, depending on whether you had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, long QT, brucata, these other things they were able to find those things more often after training. So that's good. And there's actually 
a whole training set on the British Sports Medicine uh, Journal website about EKG reading in athletes, which is very good, actually. So how has this evolved over time? I love, I love the, this common theme in cardiology you guys don't really know, this whole red light, green light concept. They've used our stoplights very well. Green is good, red is bad, yellow, uh, you're not so sure. So these things that I talked about, the high vagal tone, the sinus bradycardia is the first degree AV blocks, um, then early repolarization, incom incomplete right bundles, um, QRS voltage, or criteria for LVH, those are all normal findings in an athlete, okay? Those are things we just disregard. The bad things are ST segment de depression, Q waves, T wave inversions beyond lead V2, um, QTCs that are really long, um, complete or left or right bundle branch blocks, um, pre-excitation, and Brugada patterns. So the interesting thing is, is that these criteria have morphed over time, and I'm going to show you in the next slide because we talked about the false positive rate being very important. The isolated things in the middle were thought to sometimes be related and abnormal. So that's part of where the false positive rate was coming from in the original screening guide leads from the Europeans. So left atrial enlargement, right atrial enlargement, axis deviation, RVH, or T-wave inversions in um, Afro-Caribbean athletes is something that was important that thought was thought to be abnormal that was put in this isolated box and said, the only time this is abnormal is if you have it with one of these other findings so there's two or more of them present. So what that did, well here I was just going to show you real quick. So the hypertrophs, just because that's a sort of group we're focusing on in the United States, are not a difficult group if they have an abnormal EKG. A lot of times, as you can see from these arrows, that they have these very accentuated T-wave inversions and are pretty easy to pick up. The asterisk in the last slide was the Afro-Caribbean athlete, which can have a very abnormal EKG with these other T-wave inversions. So this was a big part of the false positive rate that kept coming up. And they think it's maybe some sort of ACE genotype with their, their muscle in particular. So looking at the criteria as they come along, so they went from European Society recommendations, out of Dresner's lab came the Seattle criteria, and then Sharma, who I was talking about earlier, came up with these refined criteria in the red, yellow, green light. So false positive rates in the European society guidelines were way too high. All comers was over 20%, which was going to cause a whole lot of imaging to occur and just not be reasonable. And if you looked at it across different populations, and the reason the certain ones were broken out is because they were significantly higher. Um, so when you move to the Seattle criteria, which changed a little bit some of the things in the mid-yellow box, you dropped it to almost 10%. Um, still higher in the Afro-Caribbean athletes because of this genotype that they have. And then the refined criteria Sharma came out with, they showed that you could drop it to almost 5% overall um, and is much more favorable. So that, from an EKG screening, is a positive thing. People are continuing to study, refining it, and able to find those things. So now let's jump gears because the echo was the other important piece and talk about the structural adaption to exercise in the echo. So... My good friend in Boston, uh, Aaron Bagish, in his lab came out uh, with a paper showing this. And this is really a, a pictorial representation of looking at an endurance versus a strength athlete. And these are sort of pure examples. An endurance athlete, because of the constant volume overload, the volume of what they're doing, and the constant heart having to deal with that volume, especially the right ventricle, 
They get sort of can get mild to moderate eccentric LVH and RV dilatation. They can get biatrial enlargement. Um, and normal is a slightly reduced resting LVEF, so they can sort of mimic a cardiomyopathy. They have uh, normal or enhanced diastolic filling and other diastolic parameters, whereas the pressure overload person is going to get mostly uh, LVH without the RV remodeling. So that's going to look very different. Um, normal to mildly enlarged left atrial size, normal to hyperdynamic left ventricular systolic function. So it's important to understand what athlete you're talking to and what, because some of these people fall in the middle, right? Some of them are a mix of these two things. They can be endurance and have a high static component. So out of the Italian lab, they said, okay, let's just take these population of patients and look at them. You know, let's, let's take our data and splay it out and look at it in sort of a scatter plot. And if you look at F LV diastolic dimension, you get a nice sort of bell-shaped curve, right? And then, you, of course, two standard deviations but beyond what you think is normal, you have a certain number of them that are abnormal, okay? So they did the same thing with wall thickness. Not as pretty of a bell shape, but similar finding. Although the important thing in the wall thickness, there were very few people beyond 13 millimeters. So that becomes important when you're trying to differentiate hypertrophic cardiomyopathy from an athlete's heart. And then if you look at the left atrial diameter, there's a significant number of people have dilated those, and from the last slide you can see why. It doesn't matter whether you're an endurance athlete or a, or a static or static athlete, you're going to get some left atrial dilatation. So that's important, obviously. If we're reading an echo and you have a patient with left atrial enlargement, you don't want to get excited, necessarily too excited about that. So the reason that's important is you look at the overlap between hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and the athlete's heart. Um, and there are certain patterns that differentiate one from another. The important things are sort of the unusual patterns of LVH, not this, um, this more atypical septal thickness. Um, LV cavities being small instead of dilated. Um, bizarre EKG patterns like the ones I showed you. Really marked LA enlargement. From that last slide, no women in that study had an LV wall thickness greater than 1.2. So if you're a woman and you got really increased wall thickness, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a big concern. And if you can't sort any of these things out, they usually go to VO2 max testing or MRI or other things to sort it out. So even more important on ECHO, so we talked about the physiologic changes. Well, let's take a real-world group of athletes and say, what's the difference between an endurance athlete and a strength athlete? We have parameters. We look at septal thickness, LV dimensions, ejection fraction. So if you look at septal thickness, posterior wall thickness, and diastolic volume between the two, they were significantly different. If you look at left atrium volume index, as you can imagine, there's a significant difference between an endurance athlete and a strength athlete. And if you look at their relaxation parameters and their stroke volume and their cardiac index, there was a significant difference there too. So that's important when you start looking at the overlap of different diseases with the athlete's heart. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we've spent a lot of time talking about. Dilated cardiomyopathy, we didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about it, but as you can imagine, these endurance athletes dilate their ventricles, um, and there's some overlap there as well. So LV non-compaction, a congenital cardiomyopathy where the myocardium fails to compact down into normal myocardium. Um, the interesting thing is, is that people have looked at that too. So actually, as athlete, endurance athletes trains, they can, they can trabeculate their ventricles. 
their ventricles can become more trabeculated. So if you look at a normal population of people and you look at an athletic population of people on echo, the athletic population has more trabeculation, making them look more like a left ventricular non-compaction patient. And then right ventricular cardiomyopathy, I think we talked a little bit about, its, it's thing is right ventricular dilatation and thinning of the wall. Clearly, if you have an endurance athlete, the right ventricle is going to dilate. So there's a lot of overlap, and that's where it takes someone that understands the nuances of the athlete to be able to interpret it, some of these studies. So this is sort of a proof of concept study. What if we could just do a five-minute screening echo, not send them in the echo lab for a 45-minute or an hour appointment. What if we could take our sports medicine doctors and do a five-minute screening athlete, look at their wall thickness, um, look at their chamber sizes, their ejection fraction, um, and their valves, and can we, can we do that quickly? So that proof of concept was done, I think it was Madison, Wisconsin, 395 athletes, 14 sports, half of them almost were female, most of them were normal findings. Interestingly, they were able to identify the origins of the coronaries, and 99% on the left main, 96% on the RCA, which is something that is really hard to screen for otherwise. Um, they found two bicuspid aortic valves. Interesting, another study that found no hypertrophs. They didn't quite get to 500, right? But, um, and no athletes were excluded from participation. So then, can you, I, I guess you guys can see that better than I can. Sorry, so this is a proposed screening algorithm that one of, looking at 100,000 asymptomatic athletes, because this is usually what we're talking about. We're not screening people with symptoms. And you look at the cascade of what happens. We talked about it. 12 lead EKG, is that normal or abnormal? If it's abnormal, they get to an echocardiogram. Why? Because the first thing we want to know is their heart's structurally normal. If that's normal, they're fit to play. If it's not, they go on to cardiac magnetic resonance imaging to further define any structural abnormalities. If that's normal, then what else do they go on to? So if you look at, you know, you screened all these people, you, you found basically 300 people with disease, you performed 100,000 EKGs, almost 3,000 echoes, 400 cardiac MRs, and 100 CT angios or stress tests. So it's difficult for everybody. This is not a highly prevalent disease. Um, to sort of, you can see why everybody's grappling with this, and it's important. But I think the bigger picture, again, for me is, this is not just 14 to 24-year-olds we're talking about. We're trying to figure this out for more of a population, from my standpoint, because we want our patients, we know we have, they have to be more active. We know that it's an important component to their health. So this is one of my favorite charts if you want to see the difficulty in screening athletes. So this is height and weight of players in the NFL by position. So defense on the top, offense on the bottom. So on the bottom left, we have Wes Welker. And on the top right, we have Michael Orr, which was in the blind side, right? He's a lineman. He's like 315 pounds, right? So you can imagine the differences of what that echo looks like. I don't even have to show you one. From the difference between somebody who's like 5'8", 190, to somebody that's 7 feet, you know, 350 pounds. So it's very difficult to figure out how you're going to do this in these patients. And hats off to the people that are actually doing the screening at the combines because it's a tough thing. So even so much so that one of the doctors was quoted as saying, um, having a normal ECG was so rare it was an independent predictor of not making it in the NFL. <laughs> Which is funny, but interesting to me too because that means American football is very unique in the world. 
because they train almost more than anyone in, in, in multiple different body types, and you can actually train yourself into an abnormal EKG. So, you know, you're going to at some point push your body to the point where it's abnormal, which gets back to the beginning of where did the deleterious effects come in. So it seems to like mostly concussions so far for them. But So what do these three athletes have in common? I talked about two. I talked about all three of them, actually. Jerry Fisher, the hockey player for um, the Detroit Red Wings. Rich Peverly, that played for the Bruins. And then our 15-year-old boy that um, lived in the Upper Valley that arrested. There were defibrillators in the sports venues in which they were participating. And they were defibrillated and they didn't die. So that's important. <laughs> the NHL went a little too far and now they want an ED doctor at every hockey game, but I don't think that's going to happen either. Um, so the chain of survival is very important. What do we know already? So immediate recognition of cardiac arrest and activating the emergency response system, early CPR with an emphasis on chest compressions, rapid defibrillation, effective advanced life support, and integrated post-care. We know these things save lives. We know that it improves survival if we have defibrillators in venues where people are exerting themselves. So you can see from no treatment to having just a delayed defibrillation to having CPR plus access plus ACLS and post-care, you can actually increase our survival rate very significantly. So that's my other job at the college is, you know, you have to have an emergency action plan. We're researching and looking and trying to figure out how to have some sort of um, primary prevention strategy for athletes. But it's very important when we already have knowledge to have a, a strategy if, if an event occurs, although be it rare. So, and again, I said, you know, there's spectators, there's referees that are higher risk than actually the athletes in some respects from the one slide I showed you. But it's very important that that happens. And so there's a map of the campus. I know this is very difficult, but the little red dots show where all the defibrillators are which a lot of them around the fields and other places. I didn't know if you know this, but actually some of you might have gone to Dartmouth College, but they actually have their own EMS systems. They have student EMS who are, are trained and actually go around with the security folks. So just to get back to where we were, so we have this, this big EKG screening controversy. We have the Europeans, the International Olympic Committee, um, Italians, Washington State, a lot of other people on the proponent of EKG screening. We currently have our position from the ACC, AHA, Barry Marin, Paul Thompson, and Hartford of no screening. And then we have, I think, those of us in the middle that think we need more research um, to sort of try to figure out what it is. Because clearly, just doing a history and physical is inadequate. And we don't want to bankrupt our healthcare system, um, especially when we don't have things in, in play to be able to screen large groups of people. So there's definitely no recommendation. I'm not giving a recommendation, definitely, that we go out and screen every single person. Just to let you know a little bit, we're a little isolated in Upper Valley. The cat is out of the bag in the United States. If you go to any city, you're going to find private groups, whether they were funded by a charity because an event occurred, or have a private company that go around and do our church-type screenings, you know, the vascular studies and carotids and blood pressure. So that's been done. People are engaged at high schools. You know, I get athletes that come up, oh, I had an echo and stuff. The company just does them, and they have an abnormality. They send them on. So that's part of why this is important, because as, as usually happens, the private sector is way ahead 
of, from an academic standpoint. And so to understand this better and understand what they're doing and what the impact of it's going to be, uh, I think is important. So what are we doing at, at the college right now? Right now what we're, we're doing is we have roughly a couple years of data that we're starting to compile in a quality improvement initiative to look at what the difference is. All of our athletes were actually screened by their primary care physician where they came from, and then they get re-screened by us. They're also getting 12 lead EKGs and interpreted by this refined criteria with a low false positive rate, and we're trying to look at uh, the impact. But the next step is Ivy League. I've been working with uh, Harvard and Princeton is screening as well to try to develop a registry because as we know, anything with a low prevalence or a low event rate, we need a lot of, a lot of subjects. And so to try to look to see if we can form a registry to increase our number of athletes we're looking at so over time we can look more intelligently, try to link it to the, to the death index eventually over time and, and have some more meaningful data. So the American College of Cardiology actually has made this a, a focus for them. They actually have a separate section like the imaging section or the valve section that's a sports and exercise cardiology section because I think as a big picture, which, which is what I think is, I'm very interested in athletes that I'm working with, but I'm also I have a lot of adult patients and a lot of colleagues, and I think it's important to characterize these things, and they do too, because they understand the impact of and the importance of uh, being active on our whole population. It really is a population health issue when you come down to the end of it, although I was talking about a certain sect of it. So the Europeans are making a proposal for a sports cardiology qualification program so people actually have to get certified to screen because the last thing they want is, even though they're proponents of it, having a low event rate. And um, the United States is following suit. They're looking for um, how we can incorporate into our training programs, how to um, train our cardiology fellows with some aspects of sports cardiology. So hopefully that's going to be a focus for us in the future. So in summary, um, sudden cardiac death is rare in an athlete. Identifying individuals for risk is difficult. We talked about the guidelines for secondary prevention if they actually have a congenital or other um, diagnosis. Uh, detailed history and physical still should be performed on every athlete. Mass screening with non-invasive testing like EKG, echoes, and stress is actively being studied, but it's not recommended as part of the screening process. Um, public education about the screening process is important. It's not, it's not possible to achieve zero risk in competitive sports. It's just not. Um, medical action plans at sports venues should be well thought out and AEDs readily available. Um, as I said, basketball, football, cross-country, swimming, lacrosse are the sports where they're most likely to have the event, um, and preparation is important. Student, non-athletes, spectators, and coaches benefit from AEDs and the locations we place them as well. So I'll leave you there. The last thing I have, what is the memorial challenge? So before I take any questions, actually the students, um, colleagues of the athletes that passed away at Dartmouth started um, a philanthropy in, con in concert with Heart and Vascular Center where they started a CrossFit event. And this happened in Memorial Day last year um, or in the last couple months where um, people did a CrossFit circuit. And there was four different levels. And believe me, anybody can participate because the goal is a personal goal. So it's, it's something as you're, you can see just from the, the number of people who participated, but they we're able to uh, raise $35,000. So I think the hope is to, to grow this and continue to do it. The idea is to raise uh, funds for research in sudden cardiac death, which I think is an important venue. But it really engaged the, the Dartmouth community, and I think they want to engage the community at the hospital and outside of there as well. So I'll entertain any questions. If...
It's, it's a difficult conversation, as you can imagine. 18, because we're screening the freshmen. Well, that's who we're screening. And you can imagine if you're 18 years old and you get dropped off at college, you're there for three days with your teammates and you come into a screening and you have something abnormal come up. So it's a difficult conversation. But um, And 18-year-olds, as those of us who had them or interact with them, know that they're not quite adults yet. So there's a lot of parental involvement. Um, there's a lot of the visit is more of a shared visit with their parents on the phone a lot of times because they're not in the area. Um, but it is, and, and you know, it's been studied. They've looked at the impact of screening on athletes, um, which I shared with my colleague, Dr. Anders, because he had the same question about, you know, what's the psychological impact to doing the screening? And overall, it was favorable. Um, so, but the, the discussions are difficult. Um, but the important thing is to keep talking, like with any patient, it's not a short discussion, you're abnormal, you move on to the next thing. It really takes a lot of counseling, like anything else. And if it's a genetic problem, getting the genetic counselors at Dartmouth involved and other things uh, is really important. It's actually marvelous talk, but one thing that was missing was genotype. You spoke mostly, entirely about phenotype. Right. We have, I think, a world-class molecular laboratory at the department, and there are about 100 genes that encode a lot of these diseases the causes of sudden cardiac death that we're talking about. For example, ARVC, there are three proteins in the, in the intercalated disc. Have you thought of making up a, a special menu of genes that are involved in sudden cardiac death? Have them screen and see if you can find gene abnormalities? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's why I gave this talk and why I generated more questions, because I want someone like you to come and ask those questions. I have not thought of that, to be perfectly honest, and I didn't know that there was that significant existence. But collaboration is sort of what I think this is about, because, you know, whether you come up with a gene array that has those significant genes and you figure out how to study that, um, I think that's important. It has a lot of impact as far as genetic counseling and other things. Because obviously there are a lot of forms of long QT syndrome and other things that might have maybe demonstration on an EKG, but it's a you don't know if it's actually path right. You don't know if it's a pathologic problem, right? So I think it's a great idea. I, I think there's multiple research avenues, but any collaboration I would appreciate. Yeah, that was really excellent. Um, and you might question why rheumatologists would be interested in this, but. Um, I see kids um, with musculoskeletal complaints, and a good third of them have either Marfan or Gaylor-Stanlos, and I still don't know what to do with them. Obviously, if they have a family history of early cardiac event, um, or if they have a murmur or any symptoms, but they may, mainly are just athletes um, that are very, um, you know, phenotypically abnormal but competitive. Yeah. You know, it's very interesting, and that's why the guidelines are very interesting, because if I talk to you, you obviously interact with the Marfan's patients, you talk to our pediatric colleagues. The guideline, because it's consensus-based and the need for people to be active, they're not followed to the letter. You know, there's this need in the population for us to be active to stay healthy, and that doesn't preclude a Marfan's patient. They need to somehow stay active. And we really don't know what the impact, if they don't have a phenotypic expression, if they don't have aortic dilatation or these other things, 
to restricting them from participation, which is obviously another goal and why the false positive rate you want to be really low. So I, I think that it's an important group of patients. And I, and I think that's why it's an important, this, this aspect of athlete care is multidisciplinary. Ortho is the most common, you know, I, I said in my interview for the college people, ortho is way more ever present than I need to be. If I do my job, I sit on the sideline and athletes don't ever know me. So that's what I hope for. So where does the low risk activity, level of activity lie for these people? I mean, should they be doing nothing? Should no, no, no. It's, it's things like golf, badminton. There's a whole, I don't have it in this particular talk. There's a whole, there's a whole chart that shows in the guideline that shows static, active, dynamic component and, and the static and, and active component and where the recommendation falls for that particular patient. But say people that play golf don't need to be screened at all. So unless you're Tiger Woods, you know, they're, they're not actually working out. But um, it, it is very interesting. But again, they're consensus-based guidelines. And so, I mean, there's people that you can shock you. This is not me disclosing this because he's not my patient. But say, for instance, Sean White. Sean White grew up, couldn't participate in any sports because he had a congenital heart disease diagnosis and took to skateboarding because they wouldn't let him participate in anything else. He's an Olympic athlete. We know very little about these patients because of this consensus-based guideline. And so I think that's also why the ACC is so interested in sort of starting this section because there's multiple different groups of people that benefit from ongoing research because we know no matter who you are, you need to stay active and healthy. So you mentioned some of the negative impacts of these 10 sections on the fibrosis. Have there been any follow-ups um, professional athletes. What, what are their like? Yeah, so there's an ongoing study. There, there, that Lagerche that came up with a screening algorithm, he has a paper that shows specifically MRI gadolinium-enhanced sort of septal fibrosis that can occur with endurance athletes. Um, my colleague Aaron Baggish at Harvard is involved in a study where they have this group of people that are running from California to Maine, um, and they're MRIing them before and because they're running like at least you know like 50 miles a day um, for a prolonged period of time to get here, and they're re-MRIing them afterwards. So there's people that are sort of have funding to continue to look at this because I think it's important. We have a group of our population that really want to push themselves, and at one point it's hard for us to counsel them. Do you know that that's going to put them at risk? We don't. We don't know. So it's very difficult. Yeah, I mean, the recommendations are really going. I mean, it, like I said, it really depends on which society you look at. I think that the recommendations are becoming less aggressive. If you're an asymptomatic person with a reasonable functional status to start, you can start exercising, you can start having symptoms. That's obviously going to trigger something else, but starting with moderate activity, um, what you can do. Obviously, our obese patients is a whole different story that need gastric bypass or banding or other things that we do. Um, is a whole different conversation. Do you think anyone should get a stress test or it remains controversial? I think it remains, it's, it's still, a, it's in a controversial state. I think it was a little clear more 10, 10 years ago 
that they're like, you know, if you're a diabetic, the Diabetes Foundation, I think, is still like, if you have somebody that's a diabetic, they're over age 40, they want to start an exercise program, it's not unreasonable. But other societies, the more general, like internal medicine and cardiology studies, they're backing off on that a little bit with people that are asymptomatic, so. Tim, I want to thank you for a fascinating talk today and for raising the questions that will help you to answer. Thank you.